You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 19, we're going to pick up where we left off the last we were in John's Gospel. I think it was Adam and Billy that took us through the remaining uh, two sections of chapter 18. And I've got, a, I've got a goal I'm shooting for. I think we're going to be able to hit it. And that is we're going to complete John's Gospel by the end of October. Yeah, a lot of you are like, why speed up now? I mean, why? <laughs> you know, we've been paying. Why <laughs> Don't sprint. Um, but, uh, and then we've got November, a little bit of a mini-series that it's still sort of in the, is in the works, and um, a Christmas series, and then the first, second weekend in January, we start a brand new series, which we know a lot about, but we're still working on it. I'm really excited about that. So we've got some really great things coming up. So John chapter 19, I'm going to title this message, Truth on Trial, The Truth on Trial. And as we come to 19... We are really now in the thick of why Jesus came, sent from the Father, the cross. But before we get to the cross, as uh, Adam and Billy begin to share with us, we've got these six sham illegitimate trials. Uh, Three civil, three religious, three at the hands of the Jews, three by Rome. And uh, again, I think both Billy and Adam did a wonderful job unpacking some of the behind-the-scenes truth about the key characters then Caiaphas is this sort of Roman installed pawn pseudo high priest who who really has no power the real power is in the father-in-law Annas who Adam shared with us really wants Christ dead and uh, so again this sort of this this trial we would the so-called trial of Christ is nothing but a political hit job by men who love power and Christ is a rival to the power they love. So at this point, the Jews now, they completely reject the truth, meaning they reject that Christ is Messiah, but he is in fact their Messiah. They say, no, we we, we will not have that. We reject that truth. They reject him as the son of God. And of course, he is quite literally the very son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Emmanuel, God with us. So they reject the truth, these Jews, and they go beyond that. We find sort of long before the modern phenomenon that we might call cancel culture, the Jews to whom the Father sent him, they must cancel him by all means. We say, well, why? Like, why? Well, because that culture's architect and our culture's architect, the devil, who's a liar, cannot handle the truth. there's no contest that's why one of the things that we're dealing with today which is so frustrating is that we can't actually even have a debate about anything so when we begin to talk about something typically we're just shouted down because the truth can't the the, the lies can't handle the truth in the end the spirit of the age the same spirit who filled Judas to betray Jesus has no answer there's no solid concrete defense when it comes to trying to deal with the truth so the truth must be censored and canceled by the way 
I'd like to suggest for you and for me an exercise for the days that we're living in right now. Very, this is very practical, and I think you'll find it to be quite insightful. Um, while we seek the truth about anything right now, watch who's getting censored. Watch who's getting canceled. And it might not be that the reason that they are, whoever they are, and I'll give you an example in a moment, it might not be just simply that they aren't toting or carrying or parroting or just regurgitating the approved narrative. It might actually be that they are, in fact, telling the truth, you see. Not so long ago, Twitter uh, suspended briefly Charlie Kirk for a tweet about Richard Levine our current administration's Secretary of Health and Human Services. If you know who I'm talking about, and I'm sure you do, the fact that he is our Secretary of Health and Human Services makes you want to scratch your head because it's just altogether disjointed, right? You're like, that's not even possible. It's like having a chain-smoking lung doctor. You know, like, this is messed up, man. This doesn't even make any sense, but, but nevertheless. So Twitter comes in uh, and suspends Charlie for this tweet. He stated that for 54 years, Richard was a married man with children, but now, in the last four years, somehow he's up for woman of the year. Now, was he suspended? Was he flagged? Was he censored because he just didn't? toe the party narrative, or because he was actually telling the truth about Richard Levine. He was telling the truth about Richard Levine. Some of you are like, no, it's Rachel Levine. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, the Babylon Bee did a little bit of spoof. You know who they are. And they put a picture, R- Rachel Levine, and a picture of him, and then underneath, man of the year. <laughs> That's great. It's great. Oh, man. So listen, I would just say watch more carefully and pay attention critically. And folks, the truth, it cannot be suppressed. It wants out about about everything that we're facing right now. The truth is coming out. So what are we watching here, really, with Jesus? This illegitimate trial. It's just the truth is on trial. Jesus said earlier in the night, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Can you crucify the truth? Yeah, amen. Well, temporarily you can. We'll see that with Jesus. Temporarily you can crucify the truth, but because it, uh, and temporarily only because, amen, the truth will rise again. The truth will, the truth will rise again. Like a geyser under soft ground, it is going to rise just like Christ did on the third day. So what we're going to see here in this particular section in John 19 is that everyone involved, Caiaphas and Annas, Pilate, Rome, Caesar, the Old Covenant, its ardent defenders, they are all caught up in something enormous. In fact, it's far greater and beyond anything that any of them can really fully comprehend. And we're going to see that not unlike Peter, who's, who's vividly learning himself, He's, Peter, remember, is learning that the flesh is no match for the demonic. And we're going to see men like Pilate 
actually, that Pilate, you're going to see, like, he wants out. He, he wants out. Like, he, wa- he, he wants out of the situation that he's in, but he can't get out of the situation that he's in because it's bigger and darker and more powerful than men. Now, the scene here as we begin is graphic on many levels. Take a look at 19 verse 1. So, so then, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So, After some questioning, Billy talked us through that at the end of chapter 18, and finding no fault in Jesus, but also that the Jews were hell-bent on murdering him, Pilate thinks, well, he scourges him. Soldiers mock him. They they robe him. They sort of, you know, humiliate him with this purple robe, and they strike him with their fists. Again, this whole thing is, it's wholly demonic from from Judas' betrayal, Ananias and Caiaphas and their wickedness. Pilate, we're going we're gonna to put him in the category of just a sad plight. This, you know, they're all, everyone, except one, of course, but they're just Satan's pawns. But watch what we see here. Pilate, Pilate has an effort. Pilate has an intention to help Jesus. I'm going to help him. And so he beats the living tar out of him. It's like, I'll beat him so and humiliate him so, he thinks, that that if I'll beat him that severely, and I'll take it, because I don't want to kill him. Well, he said it once or twice already. He'll say it two times again today. I find no fault in the man. He doesn't want to do so. He thinks, I'll help Jesus out. I'll beat him within an inch of his life, and then I'll bring him out, and they'll go, oh, there's Gosh, there's nothing left to do. That, that's, that's, that's enough. That was enough. And again, he does this, as we'll hear, hear often, I, I find no fault in him. He's in this, doesn't want to kill him, but he's caught on this massive satanic wave. And though pathetic on the whole, I, I think the man wants off the wave. He wants out of the scenario, so he thinks, I'll help Jesus. I'll beat him within an inch of his life. That way, check it out. This is not unlike Peter. I'll help him avoid the cross. And I'll free myself of my own fear. I think we're guilty of the same, many of us, because of fear. We reason the same. I'll help Jesus. I'm going to help Jesus out. He needs my help. You seen the bumper sticker? Lord, save me from your followers. You seen that? That's someone who's had a really bad experience with church people. You know what I mean? Like, dear God, deliver me from your followers. And I, I get it. And, the, and, the, and there's always folks that are nicer than God, you know. And so they look at anyone who's had a bad experience, you know, with someone who actually probably told the truth at some point. And they think, you know, Jesus, I just, I know you, I, you're, they're, they're not like you, nice and all. And so I'm going to help you. You need my help. And I'm going to help you truly because I'm actually afraid to stand up and tell the truth. And so I'm going to be nicer than God even, and I'm going to help you out. And folks, like Pilate then, all we do when we help Jesus like this is just grab the whip and ribbon his back. All We butcher Christ. We butcher him 
all the while, we're like, I'm going to help you. I'm gonna, we're going to help you. Like, Man, I, I don't need that kind of help, I promise. So then Pilate took Jesus, scourged him. Soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They donned on him this purple robe. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, struck him with their hands. They've spit on him, of course, other gospels tell us now. Pilate then went out again and said, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Like, I'm going to show you what I've done to him. Like, you're going to see that I listened to you, I, I heeded your concern, uh, I took your claim seriously, I beat him royally, robes and all. But again, as if to say, could you please reconsider what it is that you want me to, what it is that you want to do to him? I did the work, soundly beaten now, but notice, and I'll bring him out to you so that you may know again that I find no fault in him. Now on the flip side, because on the one hand, there's something negative here, and that is Pilate's going to try to help Jesus, but really to free himself from having to stand for truth. On the other hand, it is kind of sad to see that, that, that Pilate, a pagan, actually sees Christ more clearly than even the Jews do. Like, Pilate sees, he's, this is an innocent man, Pilate sees Jesus more clearly than his own people do. And I, th I think it's sad when pagans have a better and more accurate picture of Jesus than we do. And a lot of times, because we're, we're trying to be, we're trying to help him out, and they're like, that, that, does, that isn't working at all. Well, then Jesus came out. Here he comes after going through all that he's wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said, behold the man. It's a bloody mess. The prophet Hundreds of years before this brutality actually said that the Messiah, his face, would be beaten beyond recognition. So by the, time, by the time those soldiers are done with him, when he comes out, he doesn't look anything like he did when, we, when he went back there. I mean, they have beat him to the point that you're not, it could be somebody else they beat him so bad. Which makes me stop and think about the body of Christ and the ruthless and demonic assault upon it, his body, and, and the spiritual, maybe even uh, practical ramifications. The sources of Christ's wounds were supernaturally five, the number of grace, his head, with the thorns there, right? His, one's head speaks of authority supremely, even perhaps one's wisdom and will for his head, the enemy fashioned this cruel, uh, mocking, but really brutal crown of thorns. The soldiers mocked his kingship, devil also. It is, after all, Christ's authority, his high exalted position that the devil wants. And so he mocks the wisdom of Christ's kingdom, which includes sinners redeemed from the curse that Adam and Eve brought into the world by obeying Satan. Remember, God cursed Adam for listening to Eve for breaking the one command not to eat of the one tree. And thorns, you remember? God had a curse for the serpent. God had a curse for Eve. God had a curse for Adam. And Adam's curse said, basically, from the sweat of your brow, like what, what, was, what once you were going to be able to cultivate easily now is going to be very, very difficult. Instead of just a very easy harvest in time, instead thorns and thistles will come up out of the ground. It, you are, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to, your, your labor is going to be cursed. Well, now the curse of God upon man, man's curse is now 
on the head of Christ. And de the devil and Rome, they laugh at that. It's a joke. It's a mockery. <laughs> Some king you are. And then his hands. One's hands, of course, speak of power, strength. You think about the wonder-working power and the great tenderness of the hands of God. The same hands that fashioned the universe and placed the stars in orbit also reached down and touched the sick leper and the lifeless body. And the devil was like, I got a nail for those hands. We're going to stop that. And then his feet, one's feet would speak of God's will like where he'd go. Jesus said, I only say, only do, only go, only, I'm, I'm, I'm here to do not my will but his. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus meets this unsavory woman. She's, 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 uh, she's looked for love everywhere. No man, let alone a Jew, would speak to her. And John 4 says, he, Jesus, needed to go through Samaria. The, and, which, and, and how did he get there? The feet of the body that the Father gave him took him there. And the devil thinks, I got a nail for those feet. I'll stop that. I'll stop that. And then his back to carry the burdens of mankind. The devil fashioned a whip to so mutilate Christ's back, he'd never carry another burden if he tried. I had to thinking yesterday while we were there at the baptism and we were singing some songs before Tyler shared. Um, and uh, as it, it was as if the Lord just spoke to my heart, you know. By the way, and, and John doesn't, but I just will briefly. Um, when, when you were scourged, the Roman scour scourging was done with a whip. But it wasn't just a leather whip. It was a, whip, a whip that had in various places along, along the leather strand uh, pieces of bone, shards of, uh, of, of rock, and in the end, typically lead. And so the idea was that you, you would be ribboned. You, when they, would, they would lay that thing across your back and then drag it back across your back. You, you, most just died by the experience. Others, having got, lived through the experience, they went mad. They literally went crazy. It was such an experience. So then that back that was meant to carry the burdens of all mankind, now so, the devil's like, I got a whip for that. I will, I will mutilate that back so badly. And then you think, and then on top of that back, there was a tree. There was laid a tree. He carried his cross to the hill, right? And it's like the Lord just spoke to my heart. If I can carry the sins and the burdens and the weight of that tree on that back beforehand, how much more can I handle any burden you've got today? And whoever you are here, whoever you are, whatever burden you're carrying, let me tell you, if he can carry that on this side, he can handle anything that you face now that he's glorified. Amen? And then his side, you know, thrust through. First Adam was gifted a bride by God's goodness and grace. She came to him from God out of his side. The devil hated Adam's bride, you know. 
God put enmity there in Genesis between her seed and his. He's always hated Israel. He's always hated the church. The second Adam also received his bride being pierced through from the side. John tells us that once pierced, this issue of blood and water comes from a side, and, and here comes the bride of Christ. So he bled from these five sources, his head, his hands, feet, back and side, a crown, a nail, another nail, a whip, and a spear. Jesus said, uh, Hebrews records, a body you have prepared for me. And the devil hated that body, for in it Christ would offer himself as a sacrifice, sinless sacrifice, for sinful men, and also defeat the adversary forever. So he says, behold the man. And uh, the man. And, and at once, so perfectly true, and yet so totally false. He, he is the quintessential man. God's ideal man. The ideal man. And you wonder, why does such a war, why has there been such a war levied upon? Why has such a venomous attack uncoiled upon the whole idea of masculinity? Because listen, the world needs men. God knew that the world needed men. Like, not self-centered suckers. That was Adam. First man, Adam, was a life, he was a living being. Living things, like they need, give me, give me, give me. The second man, Adam, was a life-giving spirit, you see. So the world we live in, God's design was that there would be men, not self-centered suckers, but strong, courageous, spirit-filled, little testosterone would be good as well. Protectors, defenders, providers, men who are at the very same time safe and unsafe. That's what the world needs. We could talk also about the fact that God put, have you not, have you not read from the beginning, he made them male and female. And there, is there not an assault on what real womanhood is all about? Now, Pilate meant this to be, he meant it mockingly. Behold the man. God meant it otherwise. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, here he comes, beaten bloody, mocked with the crown, purple robe stuck to his back now that's bleeding. The mob, the, and the, the chief priests and the officers, they see him and they cry out, crucify, crucify. Pilate said, you take him and crucify him for I find again no fault in him. Now the crowd that Jesus was presented to doesn't even get a chance to respond to what they see because the elite tell them what to think and feel and say. Crucify, the, the official narrative is crucify him, crucify him. Well then try, Pilate tries to exert a little something of himself. You take him and crucify him. But it comes to nothing because they just shout him down. It's a, it's a perfected dark art, this bit, of just shouting people down when faced with the truth. Pilate's learning that you can't art of the deal of the devil. <laughs> you just can't do it. These men like Judas are filled with a far, far deeper darkness than deals. And so all of Pilate's helping an effort is hurting. It's not helping. You take him and crucify him. 
And the Jews answered, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. We have a law. And according to our law, which clearly they don't care one whit about, this group is in a full-blown froth to murder an innocent man without a fair trial, all of which their law explicitly forbade. They want him dead. And not because of their feigned you know, passion to, to defend the truth and ward off heretics, as they state here, no, This man, Jesus, he rivaled and he rebuked these men for the power that they love to have over other men. And it's for that that he must die. Now, we think, well, because Christ is the Son of God, truly is the Messiah, we think that their greatest sin is rejecting the one God sent while clinging to the law, the law which could not, cannot save them. No, not this group here. Their sin is that they love to exert control, tyrannical control over other men in the name of religion. It's the worst kind of tyranny. They aren't law abiders at all. Not this. Now, Nicodemus, interestingly enough, part of this very same religious sect, was a law abider, and evidently the law, as it was designed, not to save a man, but to show a man his need for a savior and then reveal to the man who that savior is, Nicodemus was led by the very same law that they professed, but he held to the truth. He clung to Jesus, and he he escaped. Pilate couldn't get free, because what is truth? Pilate had his opportunity. Truth was your off-ramp. For Nicodemus, Nicodemus took that off-ramp, and he he held on to the truth. But notice now the charge against Jesus isn't treason or insurrection, it's heresy. He made himself the Son of God. But he is, in fact, the Son of God. Remember, darkness can't defend itself against the light. Lies can't uh, debate with truth. So truth has got to be censored, and then it's got to be canceled. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, that he made himself the Son of God, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So, so again, Pilate wants out. Every effort is futile. His, uh, he's still no idea the magnitude of what he's involved in. His wife, according to another gospel, had some troubling dream the night before. Comes to Pilate and says, listen, have nothing to do with that innocent man. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and that he's also being played like a little finger pop- puppet by these pesky, pushy, little sour-faced Jews. But he can't get off the dark wave. Earlier, he had walked away when Jesus referenced the truth. Yes, I I came to bear witness of the truth. And then Pilate said, well, what is truth? Remember, 2,000 years ago, it was truth on trial at the cross. And he told Pilate, my kingdom isn't from here. But now with his wife's warning and every effort to, 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 to exit this thing, And uh, with the Jews now stating he made himself the son of God, he, he runs back to Christ and says, no, where are you from? And interestingly enough, Jesus isn't particularly in the mood to repeat himself. He's not, he's, he has no desire for redundancy. Answered that already. Which makes me wonder, personally, I wonder, 
how many of my questions, how many of our questions, how many of your questions and my questions that are genuinely sincere questions, does Christ, does Christ have no intention of answering? Again, meaning I already answered that and you keep asking me and I've made it plain already. I've already told you what it is that you keep asking me. And so, what, so a lot of us wonder why the silence. Like, I haven't been silent. I've told you already. Well, then Pilate said, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Now, if I were Jesus, and you, you all should be glad I'm not. <laughs> if, and, you know, he's... <laughs> If I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, with this little fella in front of me who thinks he has power, I, you're not talking to me? You're not, you're not talking to me? Don't you know I have power? I have power to crucify you, and I have power, that's his favorite word, power to set you free. Power. Oh, you poor little, pitiful little man. You think you've power. Now, I picture at least on the inside, but maybe on the outside, he's having a fit like a little child. You know, like, I have power. My wife is bossing me around. The Jews aren't participating. You're not listening to me. I could kill you if you want to. Who I mean, I have power. What's wrong with you? Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And we want to say, Pilate, pay attention to that above bit there because that is the answer to your question, where you're from. Where are you from? But then this is followed by an interesting reference to the one. But the one, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So this one is either a reference to Judas or Caiaphas, I think Judas, but then beyond that, and this is interesting, we don't talk about this often, but from the lips of Jesus, we have this idea that some sins are greater than others. All sins are not created equal. They aren't considered equal by God, by Christ. Certainly all sin bars us from heaven. Any infraction will keep a man uh, from heaven and separate from God, but all sins aren't equal. Some are greater. Pilate, folks, is a run-of-the-mill man-pleaser. Dime a dozen. He's one of millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of man-pleasers. You can find them everywhere. You can find them in the church. He's just run-of-the-mill. Judas, on the other hand, was not run-of-the-mill. He was an historic, he was an epic betrayer. These aren't, these aren't equal. And they both, Pilate and Judas, faced judgment. And the judge did mete out the eternal cost accordingly. Well, then notice verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So we might ask the Jews, what really is the charge here? Is it heresy? Is you just he made himself God, equal with God, or God's son? 
or insurrection to Rome? And their answer would be, we don't care. Just whatever it takes to silence the truth. Now, sadly, these men knew what everybody else knew when it came to Pilate. He's a man-pleaser, an ever-changing chameleon. He's uh, whatever, whatever wind blows in his favor there, he'll, he'll follow spineless ultimately. They knew what button to push with Pilate. He, you know, you look at Pilate now and you're like, the poor, he's like a rat stuck in a maze. He wants out, but he, just, he ain't getting out. Now, when we read from there he sought to release him, there may have been some public exchange which isn't recorded, some public attempt which isn't recorded that draws the official response. You release him and you're not Caesar's friend. Now, when Pilate heard that, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment in a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Maybe I'm the only one, but does anyone else get the sense that Pilate's being toyed with like a little rag doll, you know, being played back and forth by a bunch of kids, like callous little girls, just, you, you, you know, just being ripped back and forth? Notice, he, see how this goes. It says, when he heard that saying, which one? That he made himself the son of God. He ran back to Jesus. Who are you? But then when he heard that saying, you won't be Caesar's friend. He scampered, grabbed Christ, and now he's going to appease the Jews. He's tossed back and forth and to and throw, you know, to and fro. He, go, he keeps going back and forth. Welcome to a life that's devoid of truth. You're going to be blown back. You're going to be going back and forth. Ephesians 4 says that God gave us gifted men to keep us from this tempest-tossed pilot problem. Then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And notice, it, tell me if this doesn't sound exactly like what Pilate is dealing with. And by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That's exactly what he's dealing with right now. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the Christ. Does the church look like Pilate today to you? And if she does, could it be for the exact same reason? There's just, and we're biblically, we're just so frail when it comes to knowing what God's word says. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold the man, behold your king. You know, for a spineless man pleaser, dude preaches a far more accurate sermon than you hear in a lot of pulpits today. Really. That was a sermon title. Behold the man, behold your king. And folks, humanity could be healed of a million ills if we just understood those six words modestly. Behold the man, behold the king. Earlier, Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied accurately about Jesus and his death, being an ungodly man, but in the office of the high priest, and so has Pilate here. Now, he was wrong on both accounts. I mean, he was right and wrong. And uh, what he had wrong, he just missed the mark. But then he was more accurate about Christ 
than anyone really understood. What, when he did this, when he, brings, when, he, when he presents to Christ, behold your king, he means to humiliate, to chide, to infuriate them. Again, he's trying to sort of stick his chest out a little bit. He's tired of being pushed around. And on the two occasions in the passage that he actually pushes back a little bit, when he pushes back, it actually uproots some frightening things inside his audience. Remember the first time, you know, he brings them out and they see him. They scream, crucify, crucify. And he says, you crucify him because I find no fault in him. Well, what, what does that get out of them? They say, we have a law. Well, then the second time he pushes back, behold, your king. Look what comes out of him now. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, we Jews, we have no king but Caesar. Now, some of the useful idiots, those who are following these men, scores of them maybe, whose sad lot in life is simply, well, it will be, to follow the party narrative and simply because they will not do any thinking for themselves may have just been horrified when they heard their leaders vehemently and passionately blaspheme. Jews, we have no king but Caesar. I may have been unjustly hard on little Pilate for when the dude does preach, it gets under people's skin. It really does. It left a mark. Alistair Begg once said about modern preaching, the reason most preaching is ignored today is it deserves to be. Check out Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, present-day preaching doesn't save men. Present-day preaching doesn't even annoy men, but leaves them precisely where they are. Without a ruffle and without the slightest disturbance, anyone who happens to break these rules and it produces a disturbing effect upon members of his congregation is regarded as an objectionable person. Someone said they're going to buy me a T-shirt. <laughs> Pilate has gotten under their skin. We have a law. Mm. A law whose supreme command is you shall have no other gods before me. And Caesar has called himself God and they just cried out, Pushed. We have no king but Caesar. Scary. And there it is. From their mouths, self-ascribed idolaters, God-rejecting idolaters. Folks, listen to me. This is demonic. And more. It is precisely the pervasive sentiment that's blowing through our land right now. You understand that? We reject God, especially that Judeo Christian Bible, archaic. We, 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 we reject, we have, but we will pledge our allegiance to the authoritarian state. That's, 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 that's who we are. We want someone to take care of us. David Wilkerson said once, the modern church is ready to love the devil. 
scary. How about little Billy Graham? Be like, anything but you, sure. <laughs> Billy Graham, 1954, you ready? 1954. The communist revolution that was born in the hearts of Marx and Engels in the middle of the 19th century is not going to give up a retreat. No amount of words from the United Nations or peace conferences in the Far East is going to change the mind of communism. It's here to stay. It's a battle. This is Billy Graham. It's a battle to the death. Notice what he says. Either communism must die or Christianity must die. That's a long time ago when we were far more educated as a populace and he understood what communism actually was. It is a direct assault upon Christ and his church and the truth. And you say, well, we're not dealing with that today, folks. Communism, socialism, Marxism, intersection, it's all the same thing, you see. It's all godless, authoritarian, top-down. That's what it is. He goes on to say, has that ever occurred to you? That the devil's a religious leader and millions are worshiping at his shrine today? The name of the present-day religion is communism. I'd add Marxism, socialism, just the isms. The devil's their god, Marx their prophet, Lenin their saint, Melanchthon their high priest, denying their faith in all ideologies except their religion of revolution. These diabolically inspired men seek in devious and various ways to convert a peaceful world to their doctrine of death and destruction. He says, a war of ideologies is being waged throughout the world, a war of the secular against the spiritual. The actual battles in the areas of combat are only material manifestations of the larger battles that rage in the hearts of men throughout the earth. And this is what he says, will it be truth or a lie? Will we be motivated by materialistic philosophy or spiritual power? Will we be led by Jehovah God or duped by Satan? The battle lines are clearly drawn. Church, there's nothing new under the sun. This present iteration, it's been tried before. And it always only ever ends up the way that it always only ever does. Murder and destruction. That's it. So where will we stand? Will it be, we have no king but the state? Or, we have no king but Christ? Then he delivered him, Jesus, to them to be crucified. They took Jesus away. Took Jesus and led him away. What can we glean? I've got three quick things here as we close. Just quick, jot these down. Number one, folks, Christ doesn't need our help. Our help. And what I mean when I say that is not that he doesn't intend to use us, because he does intend to use us for his purposes, but he doesn't need us to, quote unquote, help him like Pilate did. See, Pilate would have removed from Christ the cross, thinking that would help, but that's exactly why Christ came. The cross is the message of the Christian faith. It's the central idea and without the cross there's no christianity and without the cross there's no offense and without the cross there's no confrontation and without confrontation there's no salvation any other believer in here glad some some somewhere somebody was bold enough to say you're a sinner and you need a savior and there's only one and his name is jesus anybody else glad for that yeah 
hey, the way that you're living isn't right. Says who? Says God. Anybody else glad for that? There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. Christ is looking for those that will stand for him and stand for truth, that will be faithful to him, not deny him, not deny the truth. He doesn't need our help. And it is a mockery when we think that we can be nicer to God, nicer to people than God is. Telling the truth is the nicest, most loving thing we can do. And when we do try to help like this, all we're doing is grabbing the whip and running it across his back. It's not helping. It's hurting, you see. Number one. Number two, the battle then, right? You look at these characters, Pilate in particular. The battle then, as it is today, is far bigger and darker than most realize. And so I say to you, church, listen, dig deeper. Dig deeper. Look harder. Look again. Pay attention. I would say, if you pay attention to who's getting canceled and why. What narrative do they not want you to hear and why? And I would say, literally, beg God for discernment. It is desperately needed today. It's interesting, discernment, like other gifts. Some, some have discernment divinely. Some are, some like servanthood. Some have the some just their motivational gift, the way that they function is just it's divine. You look at Darren, I always talk about Darren, the quintessential servant. When you go to the Bible dictionary for servant, there's not a Bible dictionary, you'll see Darren's picture. He's just everything, he's just the quintessential servant. But we're all called to be servants. Some are some are just naturally more capable of it, right? Well, discernment's like that. Some of you have discernment, some of you have discernment that just it came by God. It came down to you. And, and you can see what others struggle to see. You're like, no, oh, I, I can discern where that came from. Discernment is so critical. But discernment, like servanthood, can also be cultivated. So if you don't have, like, the gift of discernment, and some are just unusually discerning, they can walk into a scenario, and it all sounds right, but the, but the one with discernment goes, something's not quite right here. Something's not right. I don't know why. The verses sound right. It sounds right. It looks good. Something's not right. But you can train yourself to have discernment by digesting as much of the truth as you possibly can. The more truth that you know, the more likely you are to be able to discern the error. This is probably why we lack so much of it today. The modern church. I'm not picking on you guys because you're the best church in America. <laughs> the world, actually. I had, uh, speaking to the sermon, it was so, it's so powerful. I'll give you a great example. Last night, a group of sweet ladies here, small group together, they came up and the first one came and, and flipped through her phone and said, do you know this book? And she held up the book to me on her, on her and I said, yeah. I don't know the book, I know the author of the book. She goes, what do you think? And I go, hmm. 
You know, I'm always trying to be tactful. <laughs> you guys are like, what are you talking about? She says, we've been reading this book, and some of us are going, this doesn't seem right. And I said, because it ain't right. And I'm not going to mention the book. You can ask me later. I'll tell you later if you want me to. But I look, I know who the author is. The author's been an author for a long, long time, a part of a certain vein that is largely heretical. I mean, it just takes stuff way too far. You don't want, mm -mm. How many chapters are left in the book? One chapter. Ah, oh, squeeze through the last chapter. Then you'll know why you don't read books like that. You'll be done with it. But there was discernment, right? They, they weren't really sure, but they were sure. Like, something doesn't add up. We need a lot more of that, folks, today. Something doesn't add up. The battle really is bigger. And folks, when the battle's this big, the only ally we have is the truth. And so I say to you, whatever the basic truths you know to be, like whatever your basic, your, whatever the simplest truths you know from the Bible, listen, hold on to them with everything you've got, with everything you've got got and then arm yourself with the sword of truth the word of god amen? amen let me say one thing real quick and this is this is really valid and i think it's important some of you are going hey man this is a lot of you now, okay, we see. We see the battles bigger than we think. We understand. We're paying attention. We got it. But here's the question that, that's followed up. And like, what do we do? Like, what do you want? We understand there's a battle. We understand it's spiritual. We understand it's dark. We understand what we're facing. We're starting to understand these concepts. We're starting to understand these ideas. We know where they come from. What do you want us to do? Listen, listen. In a word, I want you to learn to say no. That's it. So wherever, the, and I know, I, that's it. So wherever, wherever the spirit of the age blows, wherever you are, whether you're a coach, right, you're a faculty member at some college or some, some uh, teacher at some university or you're a business owner or you're part of a large corporation or you're on, I mean, wherever you are, when you begin to hear the spirit of the age blow, the wind of the age blow with all the stuff that isn't true, listen, wherever you're at, I can't tell you exactly how you're supposed to sort of grow the proverbial backbone, but we will do it collectively when you're on your college campus and you go, we're going to talk about this, and you go, I'm sorry, we're not, and if you are, I'm not, no, it isn't true, it isn't good, it isn't holy, it isn't right. And what's happening presently under, I think, divine control, listen, darkness is encroaching so much that we really don't have anywhere else to go but to finally stand up. I think it's good. I think God is smoking us out. Are there any Christians anywhere? And so it's like, so folks are like, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. What do I do? Start with this. No. No. I heard a story this week about a CEO of a 
company, 3,000 employees, I think only 5% of companies are larger than 500. So this is a large corporation. This is from the past. Just bear with me. Don't get lost in the, the particular here. But the vaccine mandates were coming down hard from the government, and this company decided they wanted to get on the front foot and actually get out even before the government. So the CEO, the president, the VP, some other leadership got together and they said, this is our strategy. We're going to mandate all of our, every one of our employees is going to be vaccinated and those who aren't, we're going to double down and be tough on them. They're going to have to wear masks all day long and we're going to isolate them in our corporation. The VP, 17 years VP of this corporation, double vaxxed himself says, this is wrong. We cannot do this. We cannot do this. This is immoral. It's wrong. We cannot do it. We cannot force people to do this. And the president and the CEO looked at him and said, if you can't get on board, you can go. So he got in his car, it was a 30-minute meeting, left his job. That's folks saying no. Now watch, watch, watch. All it took is for one man to say no. 30 minutes told his wife, our retirement, I mean, our life's gonna be very, very different. I don't know what's coming now. I don't know what to do now. Are you okay that I quit, you know? You know? <laughs> I'm with you, baby. 30 minutes later, the phone rings. It's the CEO. And he goes, listen, when you said that what we're about to do is immoral, I haven't been able to get that out of my mind. We don't want to fire you. Come back. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. If you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, that man right there, one man with a, in a corporation, three you don't think any other CEOs called him around town and said, bro, what did you do? You don't think any employees came up to him and said, praise God. How many people were the benefit of one man, good, of one man saying no? That was his battle. It's not ours. In one situation. But that's what we got to do in this day and age. Amen. Lord, strengthen us to do your will. You don't need our help, not Pilate's help. It only hurts. Give us discernment and may we saturate ourselves with this book that's true. And hear us as we respond to you, rightly, because you're worthy. You're worthy of it all, as we sang earlier. You are night and day, day and night, worthy of it all. Hear us now. Strengthen us now. Embolden us now. Make us courageous now. For God's glory and our good and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Frank Ramsour. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Frank's ministry by visiting calvarychat.com. That's calvary, C-H-A-T-T dot com.